Welcome to House of Data, a show exploring how data is influencing decisions at the most ambitious companies in housing. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Together, we will dive into how housing market participants are ingesting, organizing, and making decisions using data and the competitive advantages that follow. I am the Director of Data Strategy at Altos Research, owned by HW Media, and we supply some of the most dynamic companies in housing with unique intelligence across every housing market nationwide. You can learn more about Altos Research and this podcast by going to altosresearch.com or by sending me an email at alex at hwmedia.com. My guest today is Ralph McLaughlin, Chief Economist at House. Ralph has been a Chief Economist at CoreLogic and Trulia previously, and is an adjunct professor at the University of Southern California. Ralph's mission at House is to help the organization understand the market in order to make effective business decisions. Over our conversation, we focus on what high-performing data teams look like, the role of economists, and working in a data-informed environment. Please enjoy my episode with Ralph McLaughlin. Ralph, thank you so much for coming on the House of Data podcast. I'm really excited to get chat with you about your role at House and um, all these different uh, data points in working with a data team and sharing and telling stories around data. So um, we'd love to just kind of set around what is your uh, you know, p- background and career path to this point, and then like how would you best describe your role at House? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Thank you, Alex. Very, very happy to be, be with you today. Um, yeah, I mean, the best way I could describe my career is probably an unorthodox accidental economist is the right way to uh, to say that. You know, I, I got my, um, I, I've always been a student of the housing market, at least throughout my, my career. I remember first writing, uh, you know, a paper, I think my freshman or sophomore year at the University of Arizona um, on on housing, specifically on, on sprawl in, in Arizona. I grew up in California, but Arizona was very sort of sprawly compared to what I was used to growing up in the Bay Area. So I kind of wrote a paper, I think I get my freshman sophomore year on sprawl. And I got interested in, in housing uh, over the course of my career. I ended up uh, majoring in economic uh, geography. Really regional development was the name of the degree, but it was uh, economic geography. And um, I, it became very, very interested in why economic activity varied over space. That, that's fundamentally what economic geography is. And you know, economic activity is not evenly distributed over space. You get pockets of economic activity, and then you get pockets of, of very little economic activity. And so I was very interested in, in you know, what, what explains why some places, you know, have lots of economic activity and why some places uh, don't. And the funny thing is that combine that with the, uh, with my interest in housing, you know, it sort of uh, very much set me up for a career as a housing economist, even though I didn't sort of know it at the time, uh, because a lot of uh, a, a lot of the housing market or being a housing economist is explaining why some markets are moving very quickly in some areas and other markets are moving slowly or why some areas are having a lot of prosperity in the housing market and why some areas aren't. Um, I got very interested uh, at the end of my uh, four-year degree in, in public policy, how public policy intersects with all that, in particular land use regulations. 
Uh, and you know this was uh, in the early 2000s, going up, uh, up to the uh, to the bubble in 2007, 2008. So I went to graduate school, and really started to sharpen my skills. Actually, as an urban economist or a housing economist, I was in the public policy program, but I was taking a lot of uh, graduate uh, economic courses, um, really in urban economics and, and real estate economics and, st- and statistics, econometrics, um, to be able to sort of empirically uh, look at the the housing market. So, you know, from there, I, I wanted to go to the academy. I wrote a lot of uh, papers on housing supply in particular. My dissertation was sort of explaining the role that land use regulations played in the, the housing bust in 2007-2008. And, you know, went on to become a, a full-time professor, first in Australia and then back in my hometown of San Jose, where I was actually teaching real estate, real estate development, uh, doing um, academic-type work on the housing market, again, in housing supply and then, uh, you know, towards the end of that tenure, five years, I had an opportunity to leave the academy. It was a very tough decision at the time, but I, I don't think I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't hesitate to do it again. Uh, as I, I left the academic world, when I got a job as an economist at the real estate website, uh, Trulia, uh, I think the day I started or a few days after I started, Zillow announced that they were buying, uh, buying Trulia. And uh, so it was a very unnerving time, but it ended up being um, a great, great place to work. I really got to immerse myself in very, very large data sets, data sets on real estate listings, data sets on home sales, uh, home transactions, and data sets on um, home search patterns. So if someone went onto the Trulia website and looked at a house, we could see where they are located. We could see where the house is located. And there was a lot of interesting analytics that can come out of that. Uh, I ended up getting um, promoted uh, about a year after that into the chief economist role at the Trulia brand. I was there uh, for a total of, uh, I think, a little over four years. Um, left, went to CoreLogic, where I got to play around with a lot of their data sets. Data sets were you know, very, very similar. Data sets on listings, on transactions. Uh, they had a mortgage uh, performance uh, data, so that was uh, very, very interesting. And about a year, very fat and happy there, about a year after that, someone who I worked with at Trulia was appointed, uh, Jonathan McNoldy is the CEO of House, was uh, was named uh, CEO of this startup. And uh, the startup was funded by Garrett Camp, who was the original founder of Uber. And eventually I was uh, given an offer, I guess I couldn't refuse to leave uh, CoreLogic and, and uh, you know, help start the economics program at, at House. So that's... Uh, that's that's where I am uh, today. You know, we we are a user of Altos uh, data as well as other data internally, uh, Moody's Analytics, and uh, really my 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 job is threefold at House. Uh, one is to help lead the company and help make good business decisions using um, data analytics that we have. Uh, two is to produce forecasts of the U.S. Uh, housing market. Uh, and use those forecasts, again, to help guide investment decisions. And then three is actually to do a weekly, nearly real-time indicator of what's happening with inventory and prices uh, in the U.S. housing market. So, yeah, that's a little bit about my, my, um, my career, as we talked about before the podcast, Alex. I'm uh, you know, a pilot in, av- in aviation, and you're aviation enthusiast as well, but I guess we'll try to keep that, that talk to a minimum and focus specifically on the data here. Yeah, we'll do a different podcast on all things aviation and flying and Lance Airs and all that other stuff. Um, but I'm in. Yeah, let's do it. The, the I would love to learn more about kind of your your thoughts around taking data and turning into better decisions. But perhaps as a primer to discussing that, it'd be helpful to discuss. I think the 
the kind of two buckets of data that you focus on the most that is forecasting and then the common house price index the common house price index as we talked about earlier kind of reminds me of a of the big mac index uh where you can look at the price of a big mac from mcdonald's anywhere in the world for as a measure of inflation and uh, the common house price index kind of reminds me a little bit of that. Yeah. I, I mean, I've been, I've been describing the chippy to people for years and it never occurred to me that the big Mac index is the best way to do it. So thank you for, for making that analogy. I'm going to use that. I'm going to steal that from you going, going forward. It's much more eloquent. It's, you know, it's like, you know, three words, big Mac index, and then people get it. Right. So I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to start curving that from you. Thanks. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, the, um, you know, there's a lot of very good uh, home price indexes, uh, indices out there, I should say. You know, um, CoreLogic uh, has a house price index. K-Shiller has a house price uh, index. FHFA, Black Knight, uh, Zillow, they all have home price indices. You know, so I, I've, I've been very fascinated with um, how to actually create home price indices, what goes into them, what are the advantages and disadvantages. And all the ones that I just mentioned are very, very uh, good. They're very good at controlling for the quality of house, which as, a, as an economist, you want to be able to sort of weed out what's happening um, or, or what, what movements and prices are driven by the mix of homes on the market, right? You have to control for that quality. All those indices do a very, very good job of that. Uh, the downside, however, is that they're all based on sales prices. And as I mentioned earlier, I've worked a lot with real estate transaction data, both when I was at CoreLogic and Zillow. And the downside of that is not the methodology of the home price indices, but it's the fact that these data on home sales uh, come in one, two, three, sometimes four, five, six months later. So even six months after uh, a transaction is coming in, or, or six months after you've created a home price, there's new data that's coming into uh, into the market, right? And, um, and and that's just because of the way county governments work when they record transactions. Some are very, very quick. Some take a long time to get those transactions in. <clears throat> and so the current movement of home prices that we see uh, as a result of, of, of these of these indices, um, sometimes reflecting markets, uh, you know, that are at best three, four, five, six months old. Um, and really, those homes that sold three, four, five, six months ago were on the market like seven, eight, nine, in some cases like 10 months ago, right? So you're kind of pushing a year as for when these homes first came on, on the market. And that's that's a downside, right? That's, you know, in a world where we have a lot of information very, very quickly, we want to make good decisions. You know, having real-time information is great. I mean, can you imagine trying to trade a stock you know, based on information that was four or five, six months old. I, I mean, it's kind of asinine to even think about that. Uh, but yet, you know, here here we are as, as you know, the real estate industry and, and investors are kind of doing that, right? Uh, so, I, you know, I, I kind of had a, you know, I thought, I was like, well, is there a way that we can, you know, improve upon that that challenge, that difficulty of, of these home price indices that are out there? You know, it sort of occurred to me that we could potentially use uh, listing data, because listing data comes in very quickly, uh, you know, being an Altos, it comes in, you know, there's changes that happen every day. There's price movements that happen every day. Sellers adjust um, prices. Uh, we know the characteristics of homes, so we can control for the quality. And, you know, eventually, you know, we do know what the sales price is. And that's something that, you know, we're sort of working on with the chippy right now is to augment it with actual sales prices. But usually the sales prices, when a home sells in the MLS, 
uh, it's updated. You know, you can go and see what a home sold for in the MLS usually within a few days or, or, or a week. So the you know the idea here is to take uh, listing data and feed it uh, into a quality controlled home price index. Uh, and then the third thing that I wanted to do with it is um, basically making it make it meaningful, and that's where your analogy of the Big Macs index comes in. So you know we get a, a an index that's updated on a weekly basis. Uh, it, it's you know reflecting changes that are happening, you know, no more than six or seven days ago, and it's an index that's meaningful to someone who maybe isn't an expert. Uh, in the industry, right? Uh, you know, uh, uh, a Big Mac, we know if a Big Mac costs, you know, $4 in, in, in my market here and it costs $5 in your market in, in, in Omaha, you know, it, it it's more expensive, right? But it's more expensive to produce and sell a Big Macs in Omaha than it is here in, 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 in Groveland, you know, California. And so the idea is we want to do the same thing. So what we did is uh, basically ran a model where it would spit out what a price would be of a three bed, two bath, uh, quarter acre lot home built in 1977, which is the most common. I, I went to the American housing survey and I looked to see what the most commonly configured house was, what the most common number of baths was, what the most common number of, um, of bedrooms, what the most common year a house was built in and then what the most common lot size was uh, aside from a few other characteristics. So it literally is, you know, what that house would cost in San Francisco versus Omaha versus Jacksonville versus New York versus uh, Baltimore. And it's just literally taking that house and putting it in each one of those areas and telling you what it would cost. Uh, so that, that's, that's the idea. It's been an absolute blast to tinker with it, play around with it, to use Altos data to, you know, Altos data is, is, is their big data. It's a lot of listings that come in every week and, you know, going through, you know, aside from going through the, the, the methodological um, development of the index and, and designing it so it was meaningful when it was current, you know, contemporary and all that. Then there's the practical you know, issue of actually produce, producing and productionalizing it on, on a weekly basis. And uh, that was something, I'm a team of one at house. So, you know, it's, I had to do the design. I had to figure out how to ingest it, how to write the code to process it and spit it out and ultimately, you know, push it out into the, to the world. So, yeah, it's a very long, you know, eloquent-ish, I guess, uh, response to your question about the chippy and, and home price indices. And, uh, yeah, like I said, one of the things that we're really – I uh, really want to improve upon here, um, and, and, and you know we've got a plan in uh, place. I think over the next several months, is to use um, sales data to augment the listing data, so that we don't get disparities in between what homes are selling for and, and what homes are listed for. Because that that's the one drawback of this. If you use listing data and listing prices, homes would always sell for what they're listed for. But um, you know, adding additional um, points of information on what homes sell for, you can do that adjustment. And then, you know, then you're really, you know, then my opinion, you've got, with the exception of doing on a daily basis, you've got, you know, a, you know probably one of the better home prices uh, indices out there. But again, this is, you know, if I do say so myself, right, it's, it's sort of pushing the, the, the frontier of, of what a home price index um, can and should be. Yeah, absolutely. And you kind of talked about it a little bit with like, why would you make a decision with 10 month old data? Like nobody buys stocks based on data that old or um, financial data. Like we have even 10, you know, quarterly earnings come out, you know, every quarter, like even that's more recent than that. So um, definitely doesn't make sense to 
use old data, but um, what else goes into taking data that hopefully is helpful and relevant, but also that, then just taking that data and making better decisions off of it? Like what, how, what goes into doing that? You know, I think it's a recognition that um, data, data are data are data. They they are what they are. Um, they can be used in very very different ways. Um, and I think one of the big challenges in any organization with data use is you have folks who are very experienced in using data, doing data analysis, uh, and you know producing insights uh, from that. Then you have folks maybe that are a little bit removed, but certainly rely on those data to make decisions. Uh, and then you have those folks at least making decisions or making recommendations uh, for decisions. And um, they're advocating to other folks who are you know, another step away from, from, from the data. And so just like a, um, you know, used to play that game as a kid where, you know, you'd whisper in someone's ear and then it would, you know, like someone else would have to hear it. And then, you know, you'd, you'd say, oh, uh, the sky is blue. And then by the time it got to the 10th kid, you know, it said something like the pie is red. Uh, you know, it that, that happens within organizations and, and making good decisions. And so what you can get is, um, you know, really solid analysis for folks that are close to the data. But then by the time it actually gets to the decision makers, um, you know, it can be um, disordered or manipulated or, or, or cherry, cherry picked. And so to make good decisions in a company, you have to retain sort of that integrity. And, re and it's, it's almost developing a culture to resist the urge to just cherry pick the insights that you want that help you make the decisions that you've already made. In other words, like you, you want the you want the data and the analysis to help drive decision making, not to support decisions that are already made. Um, and, and in my mind, it, you know, it, it starts from you know communicating very um, clearly to those decision makers that are maybe two or three you know, degrees separated from the data about the the integrity of, of what you're looking at. How volatile are the data? You know, is it just you know we happen to have a you know a, an upswing in volatile data, and now you're going to rally around it and, and make a decision based on the good news? Um, or, you know, are we looking at very solid trends that, you know, we can be pretty sure are not due to volatility that, that do make sense, that do, do support a decision. So um, it's, it's a constant battle, at least having, you know, worked in the private sector for, for many, many years. Um, some organizations are better at it than, than others. Um, but, um, yeah, good decision, good decision making using data, you know, again, is, is making sure lines of communication are clear to the non-experts, non-analysts, uh, uh, non non-economists, non um, you know, to, to, to ensure that, the, you know, the, the data that they're looking at is, is, is solid, it's not volatile, uh, and, you know, it's rep replicable. In other words, if someone were to go and do this analysis, um, you know, using similar data, they would, they would have, um, you know, similar, similar results. Uh, so yeah, that's, um, that's been at least my, my experience. And again, like I said, it's a constant, it's a constant battle. It's not, you know, there's no winning or losing. It's just always fighting, you know, for, for the integrity of, of, uh, you know, the data quality themselves, the quality of the analysis, and then sort of, you know, the interpretation of, of that analysis. Yeah. The interpretation and communication is a, a pretty interesting aspect and kind of an organizational challenge. What, what challenges do you run into most in playing that kind of game of telephone on telling, uh, you know, decision makers about the data and what it's telling you? Uh, you know, I, I tend to not want to 
if I, if I know going into a conversation that someone is looking for a piece of evidence that they're going to run with, and I actually have that piece of evidence, I typically try not to lead with it first. Because what tends to happen is if I lead with that and I, and I know that's what they're looking for, they're going to hear it's a, it's a big confirmation bias, and they typically will ignore everything else that you're going to say after that, no matter how many caveats that you have, no matter how, how many warnings or guards that you put up against interpreting this, whether it's replicable, they're going to just ignore it. So, you know, you have to actually think about it. Uh, and it's a, it's a fine line to tread because, um, you know, I've always at least been taught in, in, in communications training is that you always lead, you know, with the headline. Right? You always lead with the headline because it makes it easier to communicate. And you can do that, but what happens is if you if there's a, a, a real worry, at least within a culture, of there being a lot of um, confirmation bias uh, happening, that people are just going to look for the things that they want to hear and then they'll run with it. If you lead with that headline based on your analysis, they're going to ignore everything else you say. Like like I mentioned, so um, it's a it's a fine line. But if I know it's important and I'm worried that there's some confirmation bias in in the conversation that I'm about to have based on some data analysis, I will usually go through a lot of the caveats f- first, uh, and then I will deliver that the headline. Um, again, it depends on who your audience is. Um, so that's that's one way I found that's um, sometimes effective in, in preventing that. But again, it, you know it's. So it's a constant battle, uh, and, uh, uh, but you know if, if you're in an organization that is, um, you know, always had a culture of, of good data analysis, that there are other organizations out there um, uh, that that I've been, um, you know, was a part of uh, the National Association of Business Economists, um, sort of tech tech wing, and so we had a lot of folks uh, on on that uh, council that uh, the tech council or the tech wing, you know, from companies Zillow and Airbnb. We had some from Core Logic and LinkedIn, and and you know, a lot of those companies came from a culture of, of of data, data analysis, and data rigor. So you know, not as big of a uh, you know, a problem in, in some of those firms. But then there are other companies, maybe uh, ones who have been around for a very, very long time, maybe didn't start with the data foundation um, and, you know, communicating findings um, or or keeping or developing a culture of sort of data rigor and interpretability rigor, um, you know, it will be a little bit more difficult in those sort of organizations. Not not insurmountable, but, but, but difficult. What are the highest performing data teams that you've observed doing today or companies that have high performing data teams? What are some best practices and things that they're doing? You know, I think it depends on what the data team is actually doing for the, the company. Um, but, you know, we can take a, a very um, simple uh, you know, example here, you know, many data teams actually analyze internal and external data for organizations to make business decisions, right? Decisions about uh, maybe whether to uh, expand on a product, expand on a market, contract on a product, contract on a market, um, so on and so forth, hire people, let people go. And um, some of the highest performing data teams in that realm within organizations um, I've found have taken a a quasi-academic approach to the knowledge base within their company. And what I mean by that is in, in the academic world, and I'm, I'm a recovering academic here, so I can maybe allude a little bit to that. In the academic world, knowledge is not necessarily produced, uh, collectively at least, by one particular paper or one particular study or one particular analysis. Certainly individual papers and individual studies 
you know, in a very incremental basis do push the knowledge base forward. But it typically takes replicability of uh, analyses, of studies in order for a, a particular discipline to come to the conclusion that, yes, we now know something that we didn't know before uh, and then we can take action on it. Uh, right. And so taking that idea, that that paradigm uh, into a data team within a, a public company, uh, you know, can really help produce knowledge that is as close to the truth as you can get with, you know, the, the resources that you have or the data that you, you have. I think long gone are the days where you have a single analyst analyzing a single data set and producing a single set of conclusions that then drives business decisions within a company. Usually it's done collectively uh, or it's done on a team basis so that uh, team members are constantly uh, checking and reviewing each other's work to make sure, you know, the, the results that are actually coming out of the analysis, coming out of the data analysis, um, are are solid results. So that therefore, decision makers can be sure that you know the the, the data or the the analysis that comes out of the data is accurately um, reflecting the truth, the objective truth in the real world about phenomenon that's happening, so they can make the best decision for the company. Uh, and so, companies that I've seen start to adopt that approach to data to data science I think are on the leading edge and again maybe I'm somewhat biased because I've um, you know come from the academic world but I think there are a lot more PhDs who are trained in that sort of environment that are choosing not to go into the academy not to go into a publisher parish environment and instead are going into the private sector but they're taking with uh, with them, that approach to, to knowledge creation. And, you know, so I think that's um, high performing, the highest performing data teams uh, that I see today, you know, are, are taking that approach because of the folks that they're hiring. I mean, if you look at a lot of the tech companies now, a lot of their data science teams are full of PhDs that went through, you know, academic programs at, you know, some of the biggest and best universities uh, in, in the world. So it's, it's not a surprise that, you know, they're taking some of the, the very good aspects um, of knowledge creation, which is sort of a scientific academic approach to knowledge and, you know, as much as they can implementing that within their own organizations and, and good and good leadership will recognize that, you know, even though, you know, you don't always get the answer that you want, uh, it's better to get the answer that's true than the answer that you want to hear in the long run. That's a good quote. I would put that in a piece of wood. So can you dive into that a little bit more, that academic approach to data and that scientific approach? I'd love to hear more about, about that approach versus some of the other perspectives you've seen. Yeah, I, I, I mean, um, an example of this, I, I think, is you know, at least earlier on in my academic career, uh, you know, and I started my PhD program in 2003 at, at DC Irvine. Um, you know, at that time, there wasn't a ton of discussion around the implications behind overly restrictive land use regulations and what their impacts would be, say, on the housing market. In particular, you know, this is the housing, um, you know, housing wire type of uh, a podcast, right? And so, um, you know, housing is going to be at the minds of a lot of your uh, listeners. It wasn't always accepted that land use regulations um, potentially were a secondary or primary cause of the housing shortage in the U.S., uh, right? We've been underbuilding for a long, um, a long time, uh, but the the you know, the academic literature that started to come out on that didn't really start coming out to the mid to late 90s. 
and it was a few seminal papers, but it still wasn't widely accepted that, say, zoning was overly restrictive in many areas, and that was actually having a negative impact on some of these markets um, than a positive impact. And it wasn't until many folks, um, many different collaborations, I was a very small part of that and the work that I did, uh, basically started to produce a large and growing body of work uh, that zoning and land use regulations in many American cities were actually being counterproductive to you know the regional economy and to the regional regional housing markets and collectively potentially to the U.S. housing market. And so, in that regard, it was not just replication of some of those earlier studies, but it was um, geographic application to other areas. Uh, other other geographic areas of the U.S. or the world are saying, yes, as much as zoning was uh, initially implemented to protect places, uh, in, in some areas now it's actually too protective and it's not allowing enough housing and that causes housing prices to go up and all the ramifications that, that, that come with that. Um, and so, you know, taking a microcosm of that, you know, you, there may be a product or a feature um, for a particular company that... A company is interested in, you know, how how much is this potential product benefiting our company? How is it being um, used? Is it just driving growth? Uh, is it a net, um, you know, uh, a net cost uh, on the company, or is it a net, a net gain? Um, and if you have one person who is, you know, trying to answer that question. That particular person, as objective as they may be, uh, may not necessarily know all of the analytical methods behind trying to answer that that question. Um, but they also, some some people may feel an obligation to produce an answer that a manager or leadership wants to hear. Uh, but the more that you can have teams working on this uh, and and trying to answer the question from many different angles to determine whether or not you know, something is true, i.e. building a body of work within an organization, just like a body of work would happen in the academic world, uh, you can really start to have very strong foundations uh, and, and very uh, a, a very strong data team that can actually have a positive impact because if you have people standing behind you know the the results of 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 a study, not just one person, but several people that have either um, you know individually or collectively tried to answer this question. Um, it's a lot easier to uh, you know push for for change or defend what comes out of analysis than say you know one particular person who maybe reports to someone who reports to the CEO and the CEO says, "Go get me this answer." Well, that's, that's not the way good decisions are made, right? Uh, I mean, good decisions are made on on facts and on truth, not on you know what someone you know wants to hear or what agenda someone wants to put forward, and therefore they're just looking for uh, you know a particular set of, of results. You know, ask the right questions, don't seek the answers that you want to hear. So, anyways, that's the, I think that that's my sort of analogy between. Um, you know, how, how knowledge is built up in the academic world, uh, an example of that, and, and, and how, um, you know, good effective data and data science teams can uh, deploy some of those um, principles in private organizations to make good decisions. Yeah, you mentioned uh, that tr- is a, a trend you've noticed of academic folks from academia coming over to private industry. Do you think, what are some of the reasons you think that trend is, is happening? It, it seems like a great way for someone working with um, different models and statistical analyses and stuff like that to actually put it to practice. But I, I imagine there's a lot of stuff going on that's causing that trend. 
Yeah, I think there's a couple different things. You know, just just like any answer to a question, there may be not just one answer. There's many answers. Um, the two the two that stick out in my mind uh, are this. One is that you know the, the the job market is finally recognizing the value add skills uh, that an academically trained um, analyst, statistician, economist can add to a private company. It's not always you know been the case. Economists have not always been you know embedded within private organizations. Um, and so, you know, as the markets recognized their skills and their ability to help make good decisions within a company or help forecast uh, the future of a particular company or a particular market, uh, there's been more opportunities uh, for them to join private private companies. That's one. Uh, the second is that the academic uh, world, the academy, uh, in some some ways, has become a very overworked, underpaid workplace. <laughs> Uh, you know, now there are some perks that you get, you know, maybe you get summers off, but, um, you know, the publisher parish environment is, is, a, is, a, it can be a very, very stressful one, um, in, uh, you know, in, in many academic, uh, you know, positions, teaching is a lot of a, of a workload. And so if you're, uh, you're expected to do a lot of publishing, but you also have a lot of teaching to do. Those things can, you know, be at conflict with one another. Either your teaching suffers, uh, you know, the, the, you know, because you're trying to expand your research, or, or, or vice versa. And um, you know, a lot of the reasons why folks get involved, um, you know, in in a PhD program or an academic program, is so that they can go on deep dives into the field that they're interested in. And you know, if you're loaded up with a lot of uh, teaching or other, you know, administrative type of work. Um, you know, that can take away from why the reasons why you, you got involved in, in, in the first place. Um, and even those who are interested in teaching, I mean, I, I, I quite like teaching. I enjoy teaching. I'm an adjunct at the University of Southern California. But I am, you know, personally a lot happier, you know, being in the private sector and doing some teaching on the side just because I enjoy doing it than certainly I ever was as um, a uh, as, as, as a tenure track uh, a professor. So, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, some examples, I'm sure there are others that I'm missing, um, as well, but, you know, again, the opportunities, recognition of market, uh, market value within these private companies of folks with those skills, as well as a combination of, I guess, de de declining, uh, uh, you know, workplace, uh, happiness within, you know, the academic world. To the end of more economists appearing in private companies, how would you describe the role of an economist and maybe what companies are a good fit to bring on an economist? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know if I can answer that, um, you know, hundred percent thoroughly, but I'll, but I'll certainly give it a shot. Um, you know, there are a couple different types of roles that economists uh, can have within a company. I can certainly draw on my experience in the varying roles I've had at private companies that I've been involved with. Um, I, you know, on one end of the spectrum, there are, um, economists, public-facing economists that are employed by companies to either take internal and or external data uh, to produce insights that would be valuable to their consumer or to their customers. You know, example of this is when I was um, chief economist at, at Trulia, which was within the uh, Zillow Group umbrella. Uh, it was my job to take information from the uh, you know from the listing market and the for sale market. Uh, and just on any data on the housing market in general, produce interesting insights that would be useful to home buyers and home sellers. And we would put them out for free and we would generate media attention and we would get good publicity and good good PR. Uh, so in a way, it was kind of, uh, you know, academic short form type of work. 
um, that was meant to drive eyeballs to a particular company, right? You know, a PR type of to work. Um, I contrast that with, say, the uh, company that I uh, that I'm at now, I'm chief, chief economist at House. I do a, a small amount of that work. I put out the Common House Price Index every week. You know, there's that public facing role, um, but my role has certainly changed to being much more involved in the week to week, month to month decision making at a company. Uh, particularly by doing things like producing forecasts of the U.S. housing market. And again, we don't release these publicly. These are for internal uh, consumption. Uh, and, you know, the company helps make decisions based on those forecasts. Uh, other examples, um, you know, would be more business-focused roles where, you know, economists, you know, either at their own initiative or at the initiative of leaders within the company have important business questions they want answered. Uh, and economists would be particularly good at um, either coming up with those questions um, or at least interpreting those questions from others within a company into a hypothesis that can be tested. And then they will go and find appropriate types of data to answer those questions and appropriate types of analytical methods to answer those questions and basically deploy the scientific um, process. I, certainly, you know, the industry isn't limited to – those skills are not limited to economists or statisticians, right? You get a lot of folks, um, you know, in, in the quantitative um, fields, uh, you know, in particular math or, or statistics or even even psychology. There's a lot of quantitative uh, role, uh, roles in psychology, behavioral um, economics and, um, and whatnot, which is really more derivative of psychology than it is economics. Uh, so, so there's a wide range, you know, from being sort of public facing external, uh, types of roles to internal facing, um, you know, uh, academic, uh, light where, you know, we have really tough questions. Um, economists are also well-suited, especially modern day economists to, uh, doing, uh, experimental, um, type of work. So actually setting up experiments. So within, uh, you know, let's say a tech company, uh, you know, th there may be demand for changing a product feature. Uh, like, let's just say, t take a, I don't know, take any one of the uh, short-term rental marketplaces out there, right? I won't name names, but you can think of short-term rental marketplaces. Uh, they may have particular features that they're interested in to try to grow um, business, uh, to try to, uh, you know, grow uh, the number of short-term rentals either that they have on their site or the rate at which they're being booked. And so there may be important product features on a, on a web page, for example, that they might want to tinker with uh, to see if they can drive growth. And so there are ways that they actually set up these experiments where they'll change something on a page and it'll only be visible to a certain set of users and they'll keep the old you know, the old feature, the way it was, and expose that to a certain set of users. And then they can try to infer whether that particular change induced, you know, the change that they were after, maybe a higher booking rate or, um, you know, more listings or whatever, whatever the outcome is that they were um, trying to do. And economists can be very good at setting up those, um, those experiments, uh, right? A-B testing is, is an example of, of that. Um, there are as many uses for economists in the private sector uh, as there are different types of economists, and the field of economics is 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 pretty large. Um, certainly, I, you know, I think the tech 
Um, the tech sector was one of the first sectors to really jump out and start leveraging uh, some of the skills of, of, of modern economists anyways, but certainly not limited um, you know, to, to that as well. I mean, you see other, other companies that are sort of taking that type of approach. I think Walmart is an example of this where you know, Walmart's not typically known as a tech company, right? I don't think Walmart is a tech company, uh, but you know, they have a big corporate side of them that works just like a tech company where they're trying to answer you know, important business decisions or trying to play around with features on, you know, on, on, on a website. Uh, you know, in order to drive growth and drive business. And they'd have a whole team of data scientists and, and economists working for them. So, you know, I, I think we start to see other large companies uh, taking a tech type of approach uh, to doing their internal data and analytics. And, and therefore, you know, the demand for, uh, you know, economists with those particular um, set of skills has, has grown along with it. How would you, so if you're, if you're looking to bring on more, PhDs and perhaps an economist into your data team, what are some things you should do to create a good environment for that economist in that role so that it's a successful addition to your team? So, I, you know, PhD uh, economists or any, any PhDs, you know, really have gone through their program um, because they are highly interested in a topic. Uh, they have probably had um, many uh, successes and failures along the way in producing, say, their, their dissertation and producing good quality work, good quality knowledge often comes with a non-zero failure rate. And I know um, it can be uh, you know, tempting for leadership to say, hey, we want the study done. We want it knocked it out real quick. Uh, and, and that's that. Um, but I, I think in order to, to create a good environment for PhDs, you do have to provide not total academic freedom, because um, I think that only really exists in the academic world and arguably, you know, <laughs> maybe even that's becoming more limited. Uh, but you do have to give them some space in order to uh, experiment, in order for them to, uh, say, learn internal um, data assets, to experiment with different sorts of methodologies for answering the questions that the company needs answered uh, and be allowed for there to be a certain failure rate, if you will, uh, you know, which would be, oh, okay, we, we, we're hoping that we get, it, you know, an answer to this question. And it's possible that when they embark on that journey to answer that question, maybe the results are inconclusive uh, and there needs to be more follow-up. Well, that, that can be, you know, a, a you know, a gut punch to product managers that want to move very quickly and they need to make decisions. Uh, and so if you create a, uh, you know, environment that is, you know, sort of, for lack of a better word, uh, uh, you know, publish or perish that you've got to have results or you're going to go away, that's not going to create a, a good uh, a good environment for PhDs to thrive within your, your company. And you don't want to let them completely loose because a lot of academics, you know, including myself, might go down rabbit holes and, and never come back and, you know, and be totally unfocused uh, on, on what they need to do. So, you know, I'm not saying don't create an environment that have no guardrails, uh, but you do need to allow some, some flexibility, um, you know, for, for a team of PhD economists in order to be creative, in order to explore and experiment. Uh, so that, you know, for me creating a team, that's certainly, you know, the sort of environment I would, I would foster. As a final question, any last advice or things you've learned to help data leaders be more successful? 
I hope data leaders be more successful. Um, I, I mean, I guess this is going to be very cliche, but, uh, you know, always, always, always try to be learning. Um, I, I know, it, you know, leaders in the data or data science space, um, you know, it could be easy to fall back on, on management, um, right. And managing a team. And that takes a whole unique set of skills. Oftentimes that, you know, um, academics, data leaders weren't necessarily trained, trained to do. Uh, but as much as you can, I mean, try, try to, try to learn and stay abreast of, uh, you know, what's happening, how technology is changing, how data is changing, how tools are, are changing. I mean, even when I started, um, you know, my, my career, um, in the, in the private sector, you know, things like machine learning or large language models were, you know, I wouldn't say they were all purely hypothetical, but they, you, you know, there wasn't a lot of tangibility the, the tools weren't available for everyday folks, you know, like myself or everyday economists necessarily to, to, to use them. And that's changed a lot in the last decade or so. Uh, I mean, now it's, it's fairly easy to be able to, you know, download a few um, programs here in, in R or Python and run a machine learning model. Uh, whereas, you know, 10, I mean, 20, 20 years ago, you know, really, you know, had to be in a very select, unique environment to, to do that. 30, 40 years ago, a lot of the stuff was just very theoretical. Uh, it was there, know how to do it, but just didn't have the computing power. So being able to stay on top of the latest um, technologies, latest methodologies, know their pros and cons. Um, you know, it's easy to get caught up in, in analytical fads or, or methodological fads that, that come and go, but stay, stay current, you know, know how things are changing. Your team is probably going to be much more abreast on those sorts of changes. So, you know, having regular communication, make your role a, 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 a two-way street when it comes to learning, you know, don't approach it like you're going to, you're the end all know it all of everything. In fact, it's going to be the exact opposite. Usually you're probably going to learn a lot more from them about your art, about your craft, about, you know, the science uh, behind what you're doing uh, from your team, than they're going to learn from you. You're there to kind of, you know, keep the, keep the uh, chemistry there, uh, you know, keep people motivated, keep people excited, um, than you are to be, you know, a professor or to be a teacher, right? And, and you know, it's hard to do. So that, that would be, I think, my, my advice for, for data leaders is, you know, um, step back and, you know, try to learn from your team and create an environment where you really are more peers than anything else. And your role is really just that as, as, as coach and good, good coaches in any, any sport, any industry, you know, is learning much for their team as, as the team is learning from them. I love that. Ralph, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Really good to chat with you. And I've also enjoyed our, our side conversations around aviation. So excited to continue those too. Very happy to uh, talk about aviation anytime, Alex, and uh, very happy to be on your podcast. Thank you for listening to House of Data. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving a review and introducing the show to a friend in data to help more folks discover the podcast. For more information about Altus Research and the podcast, check us out at altusresearch.com or send me an email at alex at hwmedia.com. At